Capital Market Insights from ICMA. So good day, everybody. My name is Arthur Carabia. I'm a director at ICMA, and uh, I'm joined uh, today by the chair of AMIC, uh, the Asset Management and Investor Council of ICMA, Bob Parker. Good morning, Bob. Thanks for being with us again um, for our Market Update podcast. Morning. So Bob, last time we talked, uh, inflation was making the headlines again. No surprise. The transitory inflation seems to be a bit more persistent than anticipated. Can you please tell us a bit where we are in terms of trend for inflation and um, if you think, economists think that uh, uh, inflationary pressure will ease in the future? Well, the numbers, I think, are, are reasonably clear, which is that headline consumer price inflation in the United States has now increased to over 6%. In the Eurozone and the UK, inflation has increased to over 4%. And although the numbers are still somewhat muted in China and Japan and the rest of Asia, for example, you know, Chinese inflation is just over 1% and Japanese inflation is now just positive. Having said that, producer price inflation in many countries is rising at very strong levels indeed. And, you know, clearly we have high inflation in a number of emerging economies, most notably countries such as Turkey, where inflation is now over 20%, and you know, Brazil, where it is over 10%. So since our last monthly podcast, the uptrend in inflation, or at least headline inflation, has continued. And, you know, behind that, one would make a similar comment on producer price inflation. And I think, you know, a number of factors which are keeping inflation elevated. You know, the first is obviously strong demand. Secondly, supply chain disruption has continued. And then, you know, we can talk about energy and commodity prices, but you know, clearly year on year, commodity prices and you know, food inflation and energy prices are obviously showing very significant year on year increases. And it, it varies from country to country, but in a number of countries, most notably the UK and the US, labour market disruption has led to quite sharp rises in wage growth. So wage growth in the UK, for example, is running close to 6% and has been as high as 9% year on year in the United States. So you know, if one looks at all the factors driving inflation, you know, whether it is on the cost side with commodity prices, energy prices, increased wages, or whether it is on the demand side, you know, the background obviously is still very much there for inflation to persist. And you know, I think a number of central bankers have sort of changed guidance in recent months, particularly you know, the ECB, the Bank of England, and recent statements from People's Bank of China and, and obviously the Fed. And you know, whereas if we had had this conversation three months ago, the message from central banks worldwide was that inflation was going to be temporary, it was going to be transitory. I think there is now a broader recognition that inflation is going to stay higher for longer. Now, having said that, I think there are a number of factors suggesting that the next month or two will see the peak in inflation. And that as we go into the end of the first quarter of 2022 and the second quarter of next year, we actually could see the inflation numbers coming down. And, you know, I would highlight a number of factors. First of all, on supply chain disruption, you know, we can look at various indices, you know, either the 
container price index or the Baltic dry index, which is an indicator of uh, shipping trade. And those indices in the last month have both come down quite sharply indeed. And, you know, a number of indicators have shown that supply chain disruption certainly has not been wholly resolved, but certainly the extent of the pressure uh, of supply chain disruption is starting to ease off. So I think that's one positive factor. I think a second positive factor is that now we are seeing, I think, more of a balance between demand and supply. And you know, if one looks at the growth outlook for 2022, it's generally positive with you know eurozone growth close to four and a half percent, and that's consistent with forecasts from the ECB and the EU. You know, UK growth at five percent, Japanese growth at three percent, US growth at four percent. But we're not seeing the sort of disruption between demand and supply that we saw in the summer of 2021, which clearly caused a surge up in inflation. So I think that's a positive factor. And, you know, we can sort of focus on energy prices and commodity prices, but I think it's significant that oil prices in recent days have come down. So whereas, you know, a month ago, North Sea Brent oil was trading well above $85 a barrel, we're now below $80 a barrel. Although we've got extreme volatility in gas prices in Europe, and that's partly linked to geopolitical factors and the delay in starting gas supplies through the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, uh, gas prices in the US um, have come down quite sharply. And if one looks at metals prices, you know, again, we are seeing prices well off their recent peaks. And so, for example, copper, which two months ago had a peak of around $10,500 per tonne. You know, we're now trading close to $9,500 per tonne. So that pressure from commodity prices is starting to, to ease off. So I think it's reasonable if one looks at the Eurozone and the UK, the Eurozone price CPI inflation probably uh, in December and January peaking, you know, between four and five percent. But by the middle of 2022, you know, we could be back down under three percent again. And not a dissimilar picture in the UK, uh, potentially headline inflation at five percent or more. And that's consistent with Bank of England projections um, early in 2022 before we come back to around three percent. Um, and I think the UK and the US will see a, a similar pattern uh, of price pressure. So uh, the US inflation, as I mentioned earlier, prices at around 6% year on year, easing off to between 3 and 3.5% 3 by the middle of 2022. Bob, it's uh, very interesting because um, I think central banks have said that for a while now that this was temporary inflation. You're Analysis suggests that eventually it will be reversed to the mean and inflation will drop. Yet we're seeing now central banks trying to shift their language and speeches around inflation. And it seems that they want to act and they don't consider this as transitionary as they thought it would be at the very beginning. What are central banks positioning? Why is their positioning evolving given what you just described? Well, I think they have a number of challenges. And the first challenge is that if my forecasts of an easing of inflation pressure 
are correct. I think you know two points on that. And you know the first point is that we're saying inflation will be high for the next three to four months, and it will only ease off by the middle of next year. So you know we've got a good six months plus before we start to see inflation pressures easing. So it, it's the fact that inflation is staying higher for longer is challenge number one. Challenge number two is that even if you know US and Eurozone and UK inflation comes down, it's probably only going to come down to around 3%. So you know we're still in a situation where inflation rates are well above central bank targets and you know most central most major central banks you know have inflation targets of uh, at 2% or thereabouts so it's going to uh, you know inflation will remain higher than the central bank targets probably for most of 2022 and the big immediate challenge which central banks really have to address is the deterioration in inflationary expectations because if inflationary expectations deteriorate badly, then to some extent, that makes the rise and the longer term rise in inflation self-fulfilling. So actually having to anchor inflationary expectations at a reasonably low level is the immediate challenge. And to do that, I think that central banks you know, have had to change their guidance and the, the guidance that inflation is transitory, that it is temporary, um, you know, clearly was starting to lose credibility. So I think that's why we're seeing this shift in guidance from really all central banks. Actually, there is one exception, which we'll talk about in a moment. But that shift in guidance, I think, is inevitable and is totally justified. Now, how does that translate into action? We've got a very clear picture of tapering of asset purchases by the Federal Reserve. They are reducing their asset purchases by 15 billion US dollars per month. That means that the quantitative easing program will end next June. There is obviously uncertainty as to when they will raise interest rates, but increasingly markets are starting to discount a very high probability that the federal funds rate will be raised from uh, 25 basis points to 50 basis points in the middle of next year. And we may well get a second rate increase towards the uh, end of next year. In the Eurozone, there is uncertainty over when the ECB will raise interest rates. There seems to be a consensus that it is going to be only in 2023. But the key for the uh, European Central Bank is what do they do about the pandemic emergency purchase program? Recent statements from the ECB suggest that that program will end in March as planned. Uh, they may well continue with asset purchases, but rather than the current level of 80 billion euros a month, you know, we could be in a situation in March and April where those asset purchases are down to only 20 billion euros per month. And, you know, against a background of eurozone growth at 4% plus, inflation only slowly easing off from, you know, 4% back down towards 3%, a reduction in those asset purchases would be totally justified. The markets are discounting a near 100% probability that the Bank of England will raise interest rates at its December meeting. And, you know, with the UK economic data 
being robust, one just needs to look at uh, the recent service sector, PMI, you know, which uh, moved up uh, very sharply indeed. So now I think all of that suggests that the Bank of England certainly will be raising rates sooner rather than later. But what does the market tell us about the way it was managed by central bank? Because it seems to me that there's no panic about this reversal of uh, position, which, of course, you know, no, nobody was expecting for asset purchase programs to last forever. But it's quite fascinating to see that equity markets are still at historical highs, that the 10-year treasury is still around 160. So it seems like we're in a similar position than a month ago. Is that because because of the management of this transition by central banks? How should we credit the fact that the markets are still in a similar position than they were a couple of months ago, last month at least. Well, first of all, let's just quickly touch on equity markets. And if we just look at figures for the last month and the last year, I, I would just sort of highlight two figures for the S&P and the Euro stocks. And you know, for the last month, the S&P is now up over 3%. Equity markets had a difficult September, but October and so far in November, you know, they have uh, rebounded. So the euro stocks over the last month up 2.7%. And if one looks at numbers for the last year, you know, they show very strong gains. The S&P up 31% over the last year. The subset of that obviously is the NASDAQ up 33%. And the euro stocks over the last year up 25% with, you know, strong performance by, uh, I would highlight, uh, the French market, the CAC Courant, up 28% over, over the last year. In Asia, we've had the big disappointment in equity markets, and that's for a number of factors, which we can talk about China in a moment. But if we look at the Chinese market, the CSI 300, it's down 1% over the last month, and the last year it's down 2%. So I think the big theme in global equity markets is strong gains in Europe and the United States, but Asia, we've seen poor performance. And obviously, you know, a number of emerging markets, we have seen quite sharp uh, reversals. So you know, if we, I would highlight one of the world's worst performing markets has been the Brazilian equity market. And recently, gains in the Russian market um, have, uh, have given up as well. So that's the picture on, on equity markets. I think sort of a number of drivers on equity markets, the background uh, obviously has been a strong rebound in corporate earnings growth and you know, particularly in Europe and the States. And I would also highlight Japan, third quarter corporate earnings numbers showed continued strong growth. Obviously one supportive factor for and key supportive factor for global equity markets is negative real yields. So if we look at the Eurozone, you know, inflation at 4%, 10-year bond yields still at minus uh, 26 basis points, 10-year uh, France just marginally positive. So I think one trend over the next three to six months is the persistence of negative real yields, and that will be supportive for global equity markets. Against a background where, as I mentioned earlier, the growth outlook remains reasonably positive, and any slowdown in corporate earnings growth um, is going to be very modest. So all of that environment, I think, is, is fairly supportive for equity markets. And the only challenge, I think, is what happens in China. And we need to talk about sort of the global impact of a Chinese slowdown. Obviously, geopolitical factors may have implications. And that's something that investors are watching very carefully. And then, you know, the other factor 
obviously, is the speed with which yields in bond markets rise and will we get a credit market sell-off? And you know, everything at the moment suggests that the rise in yields is going to be very slow and the credit markets will be reasonably stable with spreads staying tight. Okay, well, so let's focus on, on China then. What's the current status on growth and growth outlook, I guess, in the light of the Evergrande uh, crisis? And have you looked at uh, as well at the company's result in China? And what do they tell us about not only the macro, but which is sometimes figure that are hard to grasp or make sense of for political reason? What, are, what is the microeconomy telling us about uh, where, where China stands in terms of growth outlook? Well, I think a number of negative factors earlier in the year. Um, first of all, you know, a, a major change in uh, regulation on a number of sectors, and most notably the tech sector. I think you know you mentioned Evergrande and the real estate market. The real estate market clearly is deflating. Evergrande, which has three hundred billion US dollars in debt, severe cash flow problems, um, and that has had contagion impacts on other real estate companies. Uh, and we've seen you know, small, a number of smaller real estate companies go into default. So far, Evergrande has not gone into default, although it has delayed making coupon payments on a number of its bonds. It has actually avoided a formal default. And you know, I think one positive factor is that the threat of contagion risk from the Chinese real estate market, which I think was quite a serious threat two or three months ago, is now actually being resolved. So you're seeing a number, including Evergrande, a number of real estate uh, developers being restructured, assets being sold off, maturity of debt being extended, so debt restructuring on a very wide scale. And I think that the government intervention in the real estate market, we haven't seen any specific bailouts of real estate companies, but we are seeing government-led restructurings. And that actually looks as though it is starting to prove successful. And, you know, you see that very clearly in the market. If you look at Chinese, the Chinese high-yield bond market in US dollars, the extent of the distress was shown by the fact that the yield on that sector and it's dominated by real estate developers, the yield, you know, was 25% only three weeks ago. That yield has now come down to less than 20%. And actually, Evergrande's shares, the share price has recovered somewhat, albeit from very distressed levels. So I think the first observation to make is that the shock to the Chinese economy and real estate has historically accounted for around 30% of Chinese economic growth. So the real estate sector is critical. And that what looked as though it was going to be a hard landing in the real estate sector is now easing off. So I think that's, I wouldn't say it's a positive factor. I would say it's a less negative factor. I also think that the downturn that we saw earlier in the year in uh, retail spending and consumption, that is now starting to improve. And if you look at the index of Chinese consumer confidence, if you look at the latest monthly retail sales numbers, they, they are starting to show a new uptrend, having been on a downtrend for the previous six months. And I think you know, other two other factors I would just like to mention on China is that export growth, which was disrupted by COVID-related restrictions at Chinese ports, 
export growth is now holding up very well, above 25% year on year. And I think that that will continue. And, you know, the COVID-related disruption in China, um, I think, is now starting to ease off. And actually, the number of COVID cases are very low indeed. I think the final factor on China worth mentioning is that in contrast to our discussion about other central banks tightening monetary policy, notably the Fed, the Bank of England, and potentially in the um, first quarter of next year, the ECB, the People's Bank of China have given a very clear signal that they are in the process of easing monetary policy, injecting liquidity into the banking system, potentially cutting reserve requirements. And I also think targeted loans to small and medium-sized enterprises, and also targeted loans at alternative energy projects. So I think all of that implies that actually Chinese growth, you know, for the next two quarters probably runs at five to five and a half percent year on year. The obvious conclusion is that the probability of a return to eight percent growth in China is minimal. Um, But are we going to see a hard landing in China over the next year or two? I think that is unlikely. And I think that the balance of factors suggests that for 2022 as a whole, we will see growth close to 5%. Now, that is obviously lower than what the uh, IMF and OECD are forecasting. But, you know, I think I come back to my point that China has faced a number of challenges in 2021. And the biggest challenge arguably has been the real estate market. Um, I do think that's been successfully addressed. So in conclusion, I think if one looks at the outlook for China, no sharp downturn, but, you know, 5% growth in 2022 is highly likely. But is it fair to say that China has more uh, ammunition to fight a slowing growth if they wish to do so, given how they've navigated the COVID crisis? They haven't put the same amount of money on the table, I guess, that Europe and and the US uh, has done. I think the answer to that is they have a lot of ammunition to to deal with any slowdown in the economy. And yes, the People's Bank of China injected significant volumes of liquidity into the banking system at the beginning of 2020. And let's not forget that in 2020, it was the first quarter of the year that COVID hit the Chinese economy hard. And it was only really the second quarter of 2020 that COVID hit the European and American economies. So action was taken early and quickly by People's Bank of China. In addition, fiscal policy was expanded, and that was to support labor markets and um, and the consumer sector, and also companies which were under COVID-related pressures because of lockdowns. Now, if one looks at the situation today, obviously foreign exchange reserves in China remain at very high levels. The trade surplus, which again is is somewhat of a... uh, a pressure point with uh, the Biden administration, but the trade surplus remains very strong, current account surplus strong, capital flows going into China, and the fiscal deficit is currently running at only about 3% of GDP. So there is certainly a lot of ammunition to expand fiscal policy if necessary. And if one looks at the recent quarterly report from the People's Bank of China, which was published last week, you have a very clear message that 
you know, I think the Chinese authorities are comfortable with 5% growth at the moment. I think ideally they would prefer growth nearer 6% than 5%. But the policy stance from the People's Bank of China is going to be one of monetary easing, in contrast to, you know, other central banks around the world. So to answer your question, uh, the answer is yes, the Chinese authorities have significant firepower to offset any downturn in the market. And I think actually the, the structural reorganization of the real estate market, which is still ongoing, it would be certainly naive to say that the problems in the real estate market uh, have been completely resolved. But I think the serious contagion risk that we saw a few months ago from real estate problems. Um, I think that is now behind us. Moving to a, a completely different uh, topic to conclude, we had uh, the COP26 uh, since we last uh, spoke. I wanted to ask you, what, are, what do you make of it? Uh, what was the most striking announcements as a, as a takeaway that you'd like to share with us? Obviously, a lot of positive things came out of uh, COP26. And, you know, I would highlight, you know, the agreement on trying to roll back deforestization. In addition, the agreement on curbing methane gas emissions. And, you know, certainly the commitment on trying to control increases in, uh, in global temperatures. Uh, obviously, there were some disappointments. Um, and, The fact that the commitment to curb coal production, that commitment was weakened. So that was a disappointment. But I think the overall theme is one of momentum being maintained. And that obviously has you know, a number of important investment conclusions. I think the first investment conclusion, which is very relevant to AMIC and ICMA, is that the momentum is very much accelerating for the green bond market and the sustainable bond market. So, you know, the growth in those fixed income markets, I think, will be maintained. And, you know, we could easily see a you know, possible premium developing in green bonds relative to uh, more conventional bonds. So I think that that's one investment um, implication. I think the second investment implication is that if you look at private sector investments since COP25, i.e. the Paris meeting, and obviously the, the, there is a high degree of error with this estimate, but there are estimates that over two trillion US dollars of private sector investment funds have gone into alternative energies. And I think that will be, it will be accelerated. And, you know, sectors which will benefit are obviously electric vehicles, public transport systems. And I think that trend is accelerating clearly. Um, associated with that is the investment in smart cities. So you know, that, I think, is a very interesting development. And then if we look at alternative energy, you know, solar, um, hydro, etc., and particularly wind, I think actually what's interesting there is that the economics, notably of solar and wind, have improved significantly. So those two energy sources are actually now economically attractive relative to uh, carbon-linked energy, such as uh, oil, coal, and gas. So that's, I think, a, a very clear investment trend. I think the other one, which is, uh, well, two other, actually, areas worth noting, is the focus on trying to develop, and this will require significant investment, uh, but trying to develop uh, hydrogen sources of energy. And then, obviously, many 
many nuclear plants. Now, obviously, nuclear is controversial, and you know, largely because of the uh, the safety issues and also the cost of nuclear waste management, um, and that is. Uh, takes many years and uh, is very expensive. But I do think you're going to see an increase there in what are called mini nuclear plants. Um, And in addition, I think one needs to watch carefully the development of, of hydrogen. So I think those are the interesting investment conclusions from COP. One thing that's quite interesting is if you look at clean energy indices in the investment management industry, They did become very expensive earlier in the year, uh, and the price-earnings ratios of uh, a number of clean energy funds were well above 30. I think what's uh, interesting is they have now largely normalised. So arguably, there was too much money chasing too few assets at the beginning of 2021. I think we now have you know, a more intelligent balance between demand and supply and price earnings ratios of clean energy sectors are now sort of close to 20. Now, nobody would say that that is inexpensive, but we haven't got sort of the bubble-like conditions that we had at the beginning of the year. Um, And the fact that we have seen that normalization, I think, makes this investment in those sectors more attractive. And institutional investors, and I think increasingly retail investors, will really want to focus on ESG issues uh, in their investment programs. So that clearly, I think, is not a short-term investment trend. It is very much a permanent long-term trend. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. You've managed to talk about uh, COP26 in less than two minutes <laughs> and uh, provide a complete overview for the month. So um, thanks uh, for listening and uh, we'll talk again uh, in a month's time. Thank you for listening. For more ICMA podcasts and further information on capital markets, please visit our website, icmagroup.org.